I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its taproom. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year, and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbring.co. My beginning of the episode songbook recommendation this week is Philip Ball's The Music Instinct, Why Music Works and Why We Can't Do Without It. There are many, many books out there on music and the brain. Indeed, I talk about my explorations of several of them in my first chapter. But Philip's book pulls together philosophy, mathematics, history and neurology to try and show us why we can comprehend music, why we are moved by it and why we make it. Philip also helped me realise why the anticipation we experience hearing songs we love is so acute. I didn't tell him until after the book came out that the first song that did this to me very powerfully after my father's death when I was little was Freedom by Wham. I don't think he was very impressed, but I I don't care. I still love it. (laughs) I'm Jude Rogers, journalist and author of the book I just told you about, which is out now in paperback. My guest today is someone whose 2021 book, Musical Truth, I came across in a well-known bookshop chain last summer. I was idly wandering around the shelves, wondering if they had my book in stock. They did, and my eight-year-old turned it from spine to cover out in front of Dylan Jones's David Bowie book, I remember. Sorry, Dylan Jones. Um, but this book struck me because it was also structured around songs, each song being a jumping-off point to tracking key moments in black history while exploring the emotional impact of the songs and the artists who performed them on the author's life. In an introductory video to the book online, which you can find easily, he says he's a teacher, a father, a writer and a music enthusiast. I like the run-up to the music enthusiast, but before any of that, he was a kid. Music helping him to see the world. It's a way of travelling through history without having to invent a time machine, he said. Musical Truth was also nominated for the 2022 Silip Carnegie Medal. I knew the author's name and realised I'd been enjoying him on Radio 4's The Playlist with Keris Matthews, and he had written other books, Hold Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime, Blacklisted, an exploration of 21st century black identity told through a list of insults, insights and everything in between, and last year's I Heard What You Said about his experiences as a secondary school teacher in the British education system, a secondary school teacher as well, <laughs> on top of all this. He's now a senior teaching fellow at the Manchester Institute of Education, with three books coming out this year, um, a paperback of his last book, another for middle grade kids called Kofi and the Rap Battle Summer, and Musical Truth sequel, Musical World. I'm delighted today to welcome Jeffrey Boachi to the podcast. Jeffrey, hi. Do you ever sleep, Jeffrey? Do I ever sleep? Yeah, I sleep every night. I have to. <laughs> I have to sleep. Busy man. Yeah. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It sounds like a lot, but I suppose... Um, when uh, when there's something that you want to say and there's an idea that this just like itching away at you, you kind of have to scratch that itch. So so it's just making time to say the important things. 
that doesn't help anyone that's wondering how I've managed to write that many books. Tell me what inspired you to write books about music, you know, while being a secondary school teacher, being a father of a little boy when you wrote um, Hold Tight. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to sense joy, first of all, because we're just like swirling around in in the world, which means we're swirling around in culture, politics, big conversations that we're born into. And in all of that, you've got to find ballast, usually in something that's linked to your identity, but also in things that bring you joy. Music does those two things very well. You know, I find so much joy in music, always have. It can, it can salve, it can energise, it can relax. Whatever it needs to do, I can find the piece of music that, that can do that thing. And at the same time, it's a way of, of finding or, you know, grounding myself in my identity be it as a black British geriatric millennial or, you know, a second generation Ghanaian immigrant or a Londoner or whatever else I see myself as, I can find that in music. So it's a no brainer that when I start exploring these ideas, these big ideas, I reach to music because it's, it's a very, very accessible portal into, into the conversations that I want to have. Musical Truth is great. I love it. It's full of these detailed snapshots of great songs artists. It starts with Lord Kitchener and Winifred Atwell. It goes to Stormzy, Dave and George. Um, delight to see a chapter on Buffalo Stance, which I yeah. love and went to town on in my book as well. You know, I was also obsessed with the word gigolo and didn't understand what it meant, just like you. Um, you know, just fantastic. Tell me about the choosing of those songs. Because um, some, yeah. somebody who's done that myself, you know, mine was different. It was about trying to tell stories about what music does to us in different ways. This was more about identity and about telling an alternative history of British music. That's it. That's it. Um, tricky because there's there's too much to choose from. You know, you can go into a playlist of hundreds of tracks. So I couldn't do it academically. I would have just run out of space. So I had to go with things that initially spoke to my biography songs that spoke to moments that I had lived through that I felt illuminated something about my lived experience. So that was a really easy place to start because that list started to tell a bit of a story from my perspective. But then I very quickly realised that I wanted to widen the parameters of the conversation. So I had to start looking for songs that helped me to go to those parts of the narrative that I was exploring. A lot of these songs I was already familiar with. Some of these songs I knew, but I hadn't really explored them in any detail historically. So it was a process of first just tapping into my own biography and after that just kind of, you know, pruning it and then turning a few corners to see, well, what else is going on there? What else is going on there? And that was the process that led me to to the final list of 28 songs. I could add many more. You know, there's some interesting, unusual choices you wouldn't expect there, like, you know, Ed Sheeran pops up. And I love how you talk about that as a dancehall song. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have asked me, why is Ed Sheeran in there? Like, this is about Black British music. But it was it was my way of opening the lid on a conversation about where Blackness, Black culture sits in the mainstream. Mm. And it's, and that that particular exam, example, the song Shape of You, is this an iteration of a conversation that society's had over and over again since the birth of the teenager, Black culture being illicit, being marginalised, being sidelined, therefore being attractive, therefore being commodified and sold back to the mainstream and so on and so forth, making lots of money for people outside of blackness. So Ed Sheeran loves music. He swims in culture. You can 
you can hear it. That song's a great example of how sometimes what we're listening to, we don't always know the roots of the foundations of where it comes from, even though it becomes an accepted part of the mainstream discourse. Look at that. I threw some syllables at you there. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it really makes sense. And, you know, I love the way the book's put together with illustrations. Um, sort of aim for a slightly younger audience, but, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 45. Yeah, um, we're all kids. Yeah, exactly. We're all kids in music. I completely agree. Um, and I'm also um, reading your a book about grime and other stuff, a lot of other stuff, um, Hold Tight at the moment. It's also framed by songs. Um, I love how it features 10 songs from you know the 20th century, this kind of lead up to grime. Um, tell me about the ones you chose for that, because, um, you know, you start with um, the story of um, the Amen break. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the life and death of Gregory Sylvester Coleman, who mm. did that amazing, you know, drum pattern, which we all know. Yeah. I think I wanted to, the whole reason for writing a book like Hold Tight was that I could see that this thing called grime and the various offshoots of it, UK rap, you know, um, UK drill coming later, to me, it made sense, even before these genres had established themselves in the mainstream. I understood grime before I knew what grime was. I heard it and I got it because I could hear the lineage of dancehall, of hip hop, of dance, of all these other genres of black music that had fed into it, right? So I needed to write a book that spoke to those histories. So for me, it was almost a case of documenting the journey that had taken us to this point, this thing called grime, that is one of the biggest kind of like modern black British exports. When you mm. really think about what it has done and what it continues to do on the main stage. So I felt like it was important to have fidelity to grime's story. It meant that I had to think about the music that had influenced the music that had influenced the music that led to grime as much as grime tracks themselves. So something like the Amen Break, it ostensibly has got very little to do with grime, but it's given us, you know, a lot of hip hop. It's given us jungle. It's given us breakbeat. It's like part, it's it's a hinge point for a lot of modern dance music. So I would have been remiss to not talk about that moment, um, even though it's not kind of like a grime track or even something you hear a lot in grime music. It's a big part of the wider story. And I think that's something which I wanted to make sure I'd done in the compilation of tracks for that particular playlist of songs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've got those playlists online somewhere. We, uh, you know, it's the kind of book I want to just dig into all the music. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's like of... 70 plus songs. I can't remember, but it's <laughs> it's definitely a party. Definitely. Fantastic. Um, tell us about your forthcoming book, Musical World. How does this, um, you know, move on from um, musical truth? I feel like... As an author, you're allowed to have the vision, right? And you're allowed to hold that vision close. I don't think the world is ready for musical world. I think it's such, I think it's such a powerful kind of encapsulation of the 20th century's biggest conversations through popular music. I'm so thrilled with how it came out. I know I wrote it, so this just sounds like I'm bragging, <laughs> but whatever, I don't care. Like my vision for the book is 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 huge. I feel like this book could be held by world leaders and and the biggest artists that have contributed to our shared our shared understanding of the world because pop popular music does that, you know. Mm. It brings everyone around the same jukebox. 
And when you think about the 20th century, which now we've got a bit of distance from, that that's a real moment, you know, post-war till the cusp of the turn of the century. And musical world for me had to be about the stories, plural, that we have that we have witnessed, that we have struggled through, um, the inequalities, the the politics and power paradigms that we're still wrestling with. So this is a book that's got an incredibly broad, it's so ambitious scope, but at the same time, the thing that brings it back down to earth, the thing, the golden thread is that it's an exploration of moments in time as explored by musicians who are of those moments in time. Right. And that's a very simple thing to tap into. Um, so it's a very short playlist, really. What is it? like? 40, I think it's about 40-odd songs, maybe a bit more. Um, but the scope, is, the scope is huge. And I've tried to speak to the biggest conversations that we are having, you know, identity politics, sustainability, um, everything from from sexism and racism and anti-Semitism, you know, to geopolitical issues and the, 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 the movement of people between nations and, and the conflicts that arise from that, the centering of the West in the, in the Western mindset and, and, and how that's changed over time. So, yeah, it's a broad curriculum. Wow. And this is through songs um, in chapters again, so songs from around the world telling the stories. Yeah, yeah. And, it, wow. and it's pan-global, which I'm yeah. really happy with. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the West, yeah. you know. Even when you go outside of the West, you're still looking at things with that kind of Western perspective. But I talk about that too. Like mm. Orientalism in the 1920s, this idea that the Orient is this, or like Africa as a dark continent. That's a Western perspective. So I was very keen to go genuinely pan-global and centre center other things because there is no such thing as marginalisation. That's just the, that's a conversation about power and, mm. you know, who gets to be centred. It's getting deep. It's yeah, getting deep. when's it out? Uh, Musical World is out. I should know this. I'm going to say August 2023. Yeah. Let's say August 2023. So the yeah. summer, buy a few holidays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And then just at the end of summer, bang, musical world is out. And then, fantastic. And then, and, and then we can rock, yeah. Who were the first um, music acts or artists that you loved? Man, that's such a, as, that is such an overwhelming question to ask anyone that loves music. But I think to simplify <laughs> I it, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to simplify it and go back to maybe like the first albums or compilations that I bought with my own money, because that must have been a line in the sand. There's this thing called money. I don't have a lot of it. I'm going to spend some of it on music. So these acts must have been important. Um, I think one of the very first, one of the very first was um, um, a, a tape, a compilation tape. It wasn't a bootleg, but it wasn't an official thing called Ragga in the Jungle. All right. This is Brixton, 1990s. I don't know if anyone knows this, listen, but jungle music was kicking off in South London in the early 1990s. And it was this new thing. It was fast. It was full of like clattering percussion and it had this like growling energy, quite malevolent in some ways, but also exuberant, right? I'm about 10 years old. I'm loving this stuff. It's in the air around me, like walking through Brixton. But Brixton's also got this, you know, West Indian diaspora. So I'm swimming in dancehall music. This is a compilation of songs that was sort of like the, the meeting point, you know, of dancehall known as Raga. Mm. 
and then jungle. It was like a mesh of that. To me, that was the most exciting thing. And I think even at that early point in my musical explorations, so I've got two older sisters, so I was always listening to cool music because of them. Yeah, I was fascinated in the evolution of music, even at the age of 10, how one thing would lead into the other. And that compilation captured that, yeah. you know, the way that dancehall was merging into something new and it was, and it, you know, yeah. So that's that's one. But then, at the, you know, shortly afterwards, I was spending money on things like Alanis Morissette's first album, Jagged Little Pill. I remember rinsing that tape, like loving it. Just, I don't know. Um, just, the, I think looking back, it was the completion of a singer-songwriter in full flow, um, a whole project. I'm a project-orientated person. I loved when I realised that albums could be like that. It's very different to a compilation. It's like a, an entire idea held and encapsulated for a selection of songs. And that's an album that, for me, like, really summarised that, that kind of energy. Who was the first music writer or writer on music that you loved? I remember kind of pricking my ears to music journalism, probably in, like, my early 20s or late, late teens, reading things in, like, Vice magazine, people like that. One of the first writers who I sort of put a name to that was writing about music that I was interested in was actually um, Dan Hancock's. Um, mm. he's, he's written a book called Inner City Pressure, yeah, which is about great. grime, but it's also about politics. It's about London. It's, it's about gentrification. It's about lots of different things. And I, I remember seeing his name cropping up in long form opinion pieces and thinking, this is someone writing about music, which is very exciting to me because, um, I, I sort of hadn't seen a lot of that. Um, so yeah, big shout out to Dan Hancocks because his 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 work kind of showed me how far you could go into the analysis of context through music. So that's a very very big one. Um, beyond that, um, I suppose books about music, which we'll probably get to, you know. So I don't want to jump yeah, too far it, ahead. Yeah, in first the, favorite music book. That's my next question. You know, um, yeah, it's. Um, I suppose it's. I'm allowed to say one of the books I'm going to talk about later? No. Yes. No. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Commitments by Roddy Doyle, you know, which was first published, I want to say 1987. Um, when I was very, very young, I didn't read it until I was a little bit older. But um, to sort of see fiction so centred and steeped in music and the exploration of music and the ability of music to to bridge gaps that people don't even necessarily know exist in the first place that's exhilarating that's exhilarating we'll talk more about the commitments shortly I'm sure oh, I'm glad you mentioned Dan Hancock's as well he's done some amazing pieces over the years um so thank you very much hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's book is this beautiful thing. Um, the rap yearbook, the most important rap song for every year since 1979, discussed, debated and deconstructed. And it's by Shay Serrano. Um, when you mentioned this and I got hold of it, you know, I could tell how it influenced you straight away. It's accessible yeah, style. There are illustrations in your book, but it also has a lightness of touch and lots of humour. But, you know, strong arguments running through it. Can you um, tell me how you came across it? Um, I think the Internet. Terrible answer to a straightforward question, but I think it, I think I just saw it. I saw a picture of it on the on the internet. I've got a little library of books about hip hop. Right. You know, um, people like um, Jeff Chang writes eloquently about oh, yeah. hip hop. Um, beautiful books there. Um, you know, the Thirty Three and a Third series. You know, um, there's one on Illmatic by Nas. Jay Z. He's written a book called Decoded about hip hop and so on and so forth. Like. I like reading about hip hop because I love hip hop a lot. And anything which gets into an argument about hip hop, you know, trying to place it historically, politically, it's going to catch my eye. And then I saw that this, this book was like a barbershop argument over the best rap song in, a, <laughs> in every given year. I'm like, this is so sick because those are conversations that, musicians have or music lovers I should say I've had so many conversations with fellow hip-hop fans about who's who's your top five you know what's the best hip-hop album who's better at this and that that's like the lifeblood of hip-hop because hip-hop is is at its core it's slightly combative slightly pugilistic you know there's a competitive collaboration element to it so this was a book that seemed to be doing that it made an argument about the best song every year since 1989 amazing and then when I actually like opened it up it was just this gorgeous book I mean it's full of illustrations this is the kind of stuff I like comics so to have like just a beautiful you know visual to accompany this kind of soft but hard academic approach that was full of life as well um it was a no-brainer to me and yeah you sort of get you get the best of every world. You get the history, objectively. You get the deeply subjective points of view of Shea Serrano. You get Shea Serrano's personality. I love academia, but one of the things that bugs me about academia is that it adopts this weird, detached loftiness in voice oh, yeah. and style, yeah. as though the, the academic writing it is just writing from like a cloud somewhere. The tone of voice is an affectation, but it's treated as though it's kind of um, neutral. It's nonsense. And when Shea Serrano writes, it's Shay talking to you. And that's how I've always written as well. Like you hear mm. Jeffrey talking to you when I write. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to just be a lofty voice from the clouds. So the rap yearbook ticked a lot of boxes for me, a lot. And it was just an absolute party, you know, to revisit songs <laughs> that I knew, to find new songs that I hadn't visited before and to argue with Shay through his words about the best rap songs of you know, the past 30 years or whatever. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I was reading that he was a teacher as well, so that obviously comes through in his style. 
Ah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. M maybe there's something about us teachers and the way that we are, you know, we're hardwired to connect. We're sensitive yeah. to how we connect. And we know that our audience is often unwilling because they're forced to be there. So that affects your style and your in your delivery, you know, yeah. your approach. A slight diversion, and we'll come back to the book, but um, you wrote a beautiful, um, you know, obviously your book um, last year, kind of about your experiences as, as a teacher, as a secondary school English teacher. There's a beautiful essay um, in The Observer about, um, that came out earlier this year, no, mm. a beautiful essay in The Observer that came out last year um, about how doing an English degree was, you know, fundamental to you and, you know, kind of experiencing the world, understanding the world. Um, in the classroom, um, you know, teaching English, does music come up? Do you use music to help teach English ever? Or, you know, do I'm 100%. sure kids are into music, so it might can be a way of connecting with them. Yeah, definitely. I always say, if you think that I'm going to go to my place of work where I live in a profession and not bring the thing that brings me joy into that space, <laughs> you're absolutely out of your mind. If I love something... It comes with me anyway into my into my life as a professional. So why not leverage it deliberately? You know, if you love knitting, you better knit with those kids. I love music. <laughs> I love black music. So I am going to explore black music with these kids. Like, what? Like, are you mad? Of course I'm going to. So I bring music into my teaching all the time. I'm looking for opportunities to make references and to make um, links between. Um, texts that have been placed in front of me to teach and texts that are not on the curriculum because they're not seen as of value. And often these texts are doing the same thing at different times. You know, mm. when I'm teaching William Blake, right, who is, you know, critical of society, he is a marginalised figure. He's an outsider artist who's using simplistic language to say big things about inequities in his contemporary society. In 2012, when I'm teaching that to a bunch of 13-year-olds, of course I'm going to reach to Dizzy Rascal, who's doing the same thing in 2003, you know, mm. criticising society and London from an outsider perspective, using accessible art in an angry or impassioned, I should say, way to, to widen perspectives. So that curriculum turns into Dizzy Rascal and William Blake. Fantastic. And, and that illuminates, it's like, what happens when you put two mirrors next to each other? You get in, you get infinite perspectives. So I always, always look at music in my in my teaching. Again, because music is a uni is it's a universal currency, it's a universal language. And actually, black music, if you want to get specific about it, in the current, you know, paradigm, black music is a definite cultural currency that young people are still leaning towards. Mm. You know, there's something about the black diaspora, the cultural diaspora via America largely, but from across the globe, really, where blackness is still seen as cool. It's still seen as young, vibrant, fresh. And so successive generations of young people are still looking at black music as their way of asserting themselves as adolescents. Mm -hmm. So I would be remiss to ignore that and to leave that out of my classroom. Oh my gosh. Go. Sorry, just, uh, it's another long answer to a straight No, question. I just want to come to your classes now. Thank you for that mm. diversion. <laughs> um, so the book begins with a big one, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, um, a song that I think still sounds like it was made yesterday, still sounds so fantastic. Um, 
Now, Shay Serrano describes rap's roots in this very funny way. You know, he acknowledges there is an argument that rap comes from Gil Scott Heron's poetry and further back Delta Blues musicians, further back West African 19th century griots. And he says, you know, or we could just listen to DJ Cool Herc and um, Africa Bombata and, you know, go from there. He, he acknowledges the weight of, you know, sort of academic history, but in this very lighthearted and funny way. Um and, you know, he disses disco completely as light, airy and toothless, you know, which I don't agree with, but I get why he's saying it. Um, uh, but he's talking about how, you know, disco was too soft as black living was hard. And that's how the context in which he sets this song that arrives and has 10 verses talking about, you know, all kinds of things. What do you think of Rapper's Delight as the starting point for this book? What I liked about it was um, what Shay does is he he makes you think about the the state of hip hop and how it's always been thus because rapper's delight is seen as this kind of like quintessential hip hop track and one of the first big hip hop hits obviously because it was but it's beyond that it does certain things that hip hop has always done it's incredibly commercial and hip hop as it evolved into like you know, pop rap, it's always been about commerciality. It's always been about selling records. And that's part of the broad appeal. It's got a commercial appeal. It's also sort of um, skirting a fine line between magpieing and sort of like copyright infringing. You know, it's got a sample that wasn't entirely cleared that was happening on the streets. And then that sort of made its way into the charts. And hip hop has always been playing with that, this idea of you know, who who owns a sample, mm. who owns music. And we're still getting these debates happening up to this very day. It's an outsider art. Um, Rappers Delight is also collaborative and competitive because it's got loads of MCs mm. who are competing to shine, but they're working together. That's a big part of the hip hop energy, you know, the cypher. You're working together, but you're working against each other. It's bravado, but it's but it's like a hug. So I was I was I was kind of like there was a light bulb above my head when I realized that Rapper's Delight is almost a template for all the hip hop that would follow. And I'd never seen it in that way. And that is something which I really enjoyed Shea Serrano unpicking because it's not obvious, you know? Mm. Um, and I agree with you actually about the disco point that disco was never just this like fluff music that is kind of, you know, discardable disco is a, is, is, a, is a hugely important artifact coming out of Black America for Black and Latin Americans, for the gay communities in different parts of America. Um, and there's a reason why it had a backlash. Rapper's Delight comes off the back of that lineage too, because it's got a bit of a disco groove going on yeah. as well. So, so you can't ignore that kind of 1970s disco spirit which um, which is in hip-hop too, because hip-hop is party music. You can't forget that. Hip-hop is designed to start parties, hence why it has an MC, someone to be the master of ceremonies. And that still exists to this day. It's not always cerebral. So there's a lot of tones in that track that, that Shay kind of exposes that helps us to understand hip-hop in general. When I was looking through the chapter list, you know, you know, my first thought was, it's all guys. Um, but I love, the, uh, straight after Rapper's Delight, you get um, Tanya Sweet T. Winley um, and Paulette Winley talked about. And 
there's these little bits of women coming coming through it. And if you know anything I wanted more in this book was just more of a recognition of, you know, the many, many amazing women in rap. Um, you know, what did you think about that? You know, it's a very um male-driven book in some ways, isn't it? You know, it's uh, it's a one person's choices, of course. And, you know, yeah. I'm somebody who recently gave the recent Bob Dylan book a bit of a slapping as well for the same reason. You know, for yeah. having like four women among, you know, 60 yeah, odd guys. Exactly. Exactly. It's a real problem actually. You know, sexism, male privilege, misogyny, you know, gender norms that act like gravity upon society. These ideologies are really, really damaging. It's no accident that this book is dominated by men because, you know, masculinity, the patriarchy that we live in, has designed society as thus. Um, when you think about the legacy of hip hop, the sickest MCs, when you go back to the genesis of like rap really starting to take off, it was an even kill. I remember um, there's um, there's an anecdote about, um, I want to say the real Roxanne, but I don't want to get it wrong. There was like a competition, a rap competition. And I think hands down, she won it. Oh, I think I've read that. Is yeah, it? Roxanne Chante, isn't it? Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Won it. But the organisers of the competition refused to allow a female MC to win this competition. So it went to the next best rapper who was a man. That's your metaphor for how toxic masculinity is for like society in general. So it is a problem that, um, that, that women in music in general fail to get the recognition that is clearly deserving. The way that women are positioned in music is interesting, often seen as like, divas or amazing vocalists you know rarely credited as songwriters producers you know yeah whole artists people like Dolly Parton Mariah Carey Whitney Houston these are some of the best songwriters of a generation right but they're not always seen like that and that's again sexism kicking in it's something that I had to think about quite a lot because when I wrote Hold Tight you know this is dominated by male voices by by machismo, you know, it's got a lot of toxic masculinity in it. So there are female artists in Hold Tight. Are there a lot? No, there aren't. Um, is that an issue? Yes, it is. And um, I managed to kind of even things out a bit more with musical truth because I could go into a broader range of genres. But yeah, I'm I'm totally with you that, you know, it speaks to the blind spots that society has when you can when you can look at a list of tracks and it's like not representative of everyone of us yeah now we've talked about the illustrations in already but we must um you know to say that they're by Arturo Torres they're just these wonderful comic book beauties um Grandmaster Flash like a comic book hero there's a fantastic illustration of the Wu-Tang Clan um but you're also reminded in these very irreverent pieces of you know all the firsts um uh you know Curtis Blow being the first um rapper to be signed to Mercury Records um you know the first rapper to be managed by Russell Simmons um you know, I love finding out again that I'd forgotten about how Straight Out of Compton was made in six weeks <laughs> for $8,000. Um, you know, you're shown con- consistently, you know, how these amazing records were made in often mm. very quick, very cheap ways. You know, this is proper DIY punk spirit. You know, it, it's not, again, talked about like that in, in the same way as it is in, you know, yeah. a bunch of white guys playing, you know, 
updated rock and roll in 1977. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, to me, it speaks to uh, to a, a slightly wider conversation about how marginalised groups, individuals, communities um, have to find their way and navigate mainstream society. You have to find your own little pockets to thrive in. You have to find paths that haven't been paved for you. Um, you have to you have to lean into a level of inventiveness and creativity that dominant ideologies, dominant identities have never had to consider. And so the hip-hop story is why I feel so strongly about hip-hop. It speaks exactly to that because it came from nothing. It came from um, raw creativity and adversity, you know, making music when you haven't got the means to make music, capitalising on on fortuitous moments like there was that blackout in New York and that was the first time when a lot of people because of looting were able to get some of the equipment that allowed them to you know to to host block parties that would help hip hop to to evolve um turning your limitations into superpowers which is something that humans do incredibly well break dancing mm. because you know where can you dance if you haven't got venues well you're going to have to put something down. So cardboard, old bits of lino. Okay, so we can actually slide around on this so we can spin on our backs and then you're inventing dance moves. It's, it's, it's invention in the face of adversity at its highest level. You know, Grand Wizard Theodore holding the record and his mum telling him to turn down the music and, mm-hmm. that, and, and, that, and that sound, that movement, hearing that and hearing something cool in it becomes the scratch. Incredible. Yeah. So I feel like hip hop in a way is a metaphor for the marginalized experience flourishing um, because, it, because it does that. And it's rooted in a, in, in a quest for creativity and expression, you know, in a 360 as well. Yeah. Spoken expression, visual expression, graffiti, physical expression, breakdancing, you know, um, sartorial expression, the clothing, the streetwear, the gold, yeah. um, economic expression, because that's the other thing. It's like the business model for hip hop is an interesting thing, the entrepreneurial aspect of it. This is creativity against the odds. Black and brown people in the East Coast of the USA who have no business making anything of their lives in that climate, making something that has gone on to dominate the world. It's like... It's an amazing thing. It's something that, that that I don't think we can recognise enough. Oh, absolutely. God, that was so beautifully expressed, turning their limitations into superpowers. I could have won that as a, you know, <laughs> that is just such a brilliant way to put it. Um, I also like, you know, obviously you get a lot of the, you know, gangster rap narrative kind of running through parts mm. of this book, but you also get these lovely nuanced bits Um Tribe Called Quest's Benita Applebaum um, being um, the best love um, raps, uh, the best rap song about love. There's this list yeah. of great um, rap songs about love. I love that bit. Um, you've got um, a really lovely um, entry about Tupac and his song Dear Mama and about his relationship with his mother. And um, mm. so you've got these, you know, in quote marks, notorious figures of the genre kind of written about in these, you know, very, you know, rounded 360 ways. Um, and yeah. I thought that was great as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's, I think that's really important because as, as um, rap, specifically not hip hop, but as rap became more commercial 
and sold to mainstream America, it tipped it to caricature. That's what the gangster rap um, figure is. It's a stereotype, which is a caricature of an outlaw street figure, right? And the gangster rapper is obviously incredibly alluring because it's an overblown stereotype, you know, hyper-masculine, obsessed with wealth acquisition, you know, super sexualized, capable of violence. This is like what people like to read about in in the most overblown stories. And, yeah. like, you know, it's like drama. It's like Greek tragedy. Like, wow, look at these characters. Yeah, so, yeah. So the selling of that is is an easy sell, but 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 no one's that. No one is an overblown stereotype. We're people, isn't it? And yeah. so I feel like the the fact that these figures um, sort of uh, have got other shades and tones to themselves, and this is why Tupac is such a compelling figure because he displayed various shades and tones of his psyche yeah. um, at the same time. And it blew people's minds because he was a thug. He lived it. He had a tattoo, thug life. But at the same time, he was a poet. At the same time, he was a revolutionary. At the same time, he was a mama's boy. At the same time, he was soft. At yeah. the same time, he was hard. So that's, that's again, something which, which hip-hop allows you to be. It allows you to, to have tonality to yourself, which is, which is quite special in a world that's often trying to sell one aspect of a person, you know. In a in a stereotypical way, what other um, genres would you like seen you know um, deconstructed in this way as well? It's such a great idea to go through year by year <laughs> and track yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I would love to start with the ones which are seen as overly simple. That's that's the first thing. So you know, something like punk would be fascinating. You know, I'm not sure if how how long the punk lineage actually goes until it evolves into something else, but um, kind of independent, you know, rock music will be an interesting thing to deconstruct in this way as well and watch it change and watch it grow. That'll be fascinating. Um, For me, a bit closer to home. Yeah. Grime, UK rap, all of that. Um, I'd love to see UK drill um, taken apart in, in this way. Um, I can see it happening right now. Like we're getting UK drill love songs now, right? which I predicted because any genre of music that starts off with aggression and like anger and sort of like that kind of like combative energy, eventually it's going to get melodic. It's going to get more introspective. Central C's got a whole bag of them, you know, A1 and J1 has got stuff, you know, so, and that's the evolution because UK drill started and it was just about like street violence and like, and like, essentially cautionary tales of life on the streets and it was very you know moody now we've got love songs so that evolution is something which i like to see um yeah maybe i should write something about it actually maybe i should oh yeah do a little i like the idea that everything starts in aggression and ends up in love songs (laughs) it does yeah yeah it does it does it it, yeah (laughs) eventually we all end up writing love songs yeah (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for bringing me the rap yearbook. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I didn't even talk about the amazing, like little, almost picture graphs of the songs with lyrics and weird symbols. I know, and I know. There's a lot of um, genres like rock that I don't think somebody would do this sort of treatment because sometimes people treat rock in a very serious, you know, mm. way. But treating rock like this would be the best way to treat it because it was, yeah. and so many other genres. No, it's fantastic. Thank you for bringing it. So that's Shea Serrano's. 
uh, the wrap book with illustrations by Arturo Torres. Now, you've got some more book recommendations for me. Um, you've already um, mentioned one. Um, and they're both um, they're both um, works of fiction, which I really like. You know, obviously, you're somebody who writes fiction as well yourself. Tell me a little bit more about how Roddy Doll's The Commitments had an effect on you. Um, I I fell in love with his depiction of of where he grew up through his novels. Um, which might be the highest praise you can give to a novelist. I fell in love with Barrytown. I fell in love with Ireland as seen through the eyes of Roddy Doyle. Um, and The Commitments is obviously the start of that journey. It's it's his first novel, debut novel, um, the start of what's known as the Barrytown trilogy. And it takes us, it takes us to Dublin. It takes us to Dublin in the 1980s and to young people uh, finding their way in the world through music, so to me it was it was a portal to a world that I didn't know, but also the world that I in, instinctively understood because I've been a young person finding my way in the world through music, through culture. We all have, and the excitement was just infectious. But also beyond that, there's something which which I love, particularly about kind of Irish literature, there's, there's always a bit of a pathos in there. There's always a kind of, um, there's always a kind of a wry humour in spite of a sort of pervading kind of sadness. And I think that's what life is like. That's not specific to, you know, the Irish experience, but Ireland, Irish history and Irish literature as a result has got a very a kind of melancholy playfulness to it, um, which to me is, is irresistible. I, I just, I just love that. Um, some of my favorite, some of my favorite writers are out of Ireland. And then it's also the positioning of Ireland as an outsider, as an outsider state, which you get very early in this novel. You know, Jimmy Rabbit talks about, you know, Ireland as being the black people of Europe. And then Dublin being the black people of Ireland. And <laughs> he keeps going <laughs> until he gets down to the to the people in that pub being the black people of that part of Dublin. And then he says, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And his mates are like, what are you talking about? But it's it's just it's funny, it's clever, it speaks to a universal truth about what it feels like to be marginalized and how you can be empowered by that marginalization. Oh, that's cool, man. So yeah. I hadn't and, read it for years, but um, yeah, I loved yeah. it when I did. It's, it's just so funny as well. But but that, the energy of it and the fact that he goes to soul music, you know, he's trying to find what is the thing that's most relevant? What is the most authentic? Young people are always looking for what's real, especially nowadays because we live in an assimilation. Social media is giving us fake, fake, fake all the time, like Instagram profiles and people that look a certain way, but their real lives are totally different. So, you know, young people want to know what's authentic and a lot of musical genres that kick off that really sort of like grab an audience, that grab a generation. They have this kind of like um, grungy authenticity to them, you yeah. know, be it grunge, be it grime, be it hip hop. It's sort of like from the streets. It's, you know, garage. It is from real places. Young people don't want, they don't want to, they don't want the fake. They want the real. And and soul music here 
is the solution to that, to this band that are dabbling in like, you know, modern synth pop and, you know, art school music as Jimmy Rabbit sort of like disparagingly calls it. <laughs> and he's like, no, nah, you want to get soul music. This is about, this is about riding, you know, this is about sex and politics, you know? So I just like that because I feel like that energy is something that, um, that we all have in us as adolescents, because we're all adolescents. No one makes it to old. I don't care how old you are. No one's old. <laughs> and that energy is what we, is, fuels us quite a lot as we sort of push into the world. I love so. it. I love it. <laughs> now tell me about this other one. This is probably my favourite book choice I've had from all the seasons. This is a book I hadn't yes. heard of. I'd heard of the writer because I'm a mother of an eight-year-old boy and I have recently read other books by this writer, much more famous books by this writer. Yeah. The Conquerors. The Conquerors by David McKee. David um, McKee is best, best known for writing, um, well, the Mr. Ben. The Elmer um, series. Series, yeah. And Not Now Bernard is, a, is another very famous oh, David. He's, he's, he's written many, many classics. Um, the Elmer books. And, yeah. yeah, the Elmer books. And he only died fairly recently. I think yeah. it was only a couple of years ago. So, um, uh, so he's 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 left a powerful legacy. The Conquerors is a book that um, I didn't know when I was growing up, but I came across it when I was uh, buying books for for my son when he was little. Do you want me to give you a little rundown of it, or what? What do you want to do? Yeah, t- do yeah. So, so tell us about the role music plays in it. Without can you do it without giving a spoiler? I don't know if you can. Yeah, or... a little bit. It's about <laughs> it's about an army from a big country and they conquer every other country, right? Because they're just amazing. And they go around and they're chanting, we are the conquerors. Then they go to the, there's no, there are no countries left apart from the smallest country, all right? And the smallest country isn't worth conquering, but there's no one else left to conquer. So the army goes to conquer the small country. They go there and they're met with no resistance. This country just like welcomes them in. And actually they do the opposite of resisting and they and actually start cooking for them and like giving them clothes and so on and so forth. And to cut to the chase, the general of the army at the end, all of his troops are so influenced and affected by the culture of this little country that all they have left is this little country's culture. And when the general of the army is putting his own son to bed, he can't think of anything else to say or to sing other than the song of the little country. And that's beautiful. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorite endings to a picture book because it's so neat and so satisfying that actually, you know, the conqueror was the little country and it conquered through culture and through music specifically because that song is all that's left. And the song gets into the heart of not only the army, but of the head of the army in his most intimate space. That's the power of music, right? Surely. Yeah, definitely. That's very beautiful. I'm, I'm going to try and get it. My son will say he's too old for it, but he's not too old for it because we're never too old for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I love a picture book. Yeah, me I too. Use it, um, I use them when I'm teaching A-level, when I've taught A-level, because they're such a great way to get into big conversations. Fantastic. Um, and do you have a book song for us, Jeffrey? A song that's inspired by a work of literature? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it's really difficult to to zoom in on something. I was like rifling through books and stuff, and then I landed on um, um, Sonny's letter, 
by Linton Kwesi Johnson. Oh yeah. Because uh, it's, it's a song I've written about in musical truth. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a song dub poetry, you know, is how you would describe it, but it started off as a piece of poetry, you know, r- written poetry. And it tells the story. It tells the story of two brothers who find themselves accosted by the police. You know, we're talking about 1970s UK two black Jamaican guys and it and it doesn't go well basically. And this um this piece of poetry is so arresting and so and so powerful and painful. But the song at the same time is just, you know, it's so accessible. And that if you add that all up, it's it's a very powerful piece of music. It's a very powerful message, story. Um and piece of art which you can listen to despite the painful subject matter and you can learn from you know it's protest music and I think it actually helped that song and definitely Linton Kwesi Johnson's work in general helped people to think differently about the laws of the land you know and contributed towards certain laws being repealed and changed so you know again the power of music and literature and art in general is kind of um, captured by that song to me. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, our playlist is getting fantastic. It's just got so much range and interesting. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. It's an absolute privilege. And yeah, cheers for reaching out because. Um, oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being yeah, my guest. It's been time. great. Um, and thank you all for listening. Uh, as always, songbook episodes from seasons one and seasons two so far are up now on Apple Podcasts and the many other streaming services. Please like and subscribe. Uh, It helps us rocket up the charts and get known by other people. Um, And thanks again. I'll see you next week. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.